0: Amen. And what a great prayer that we bring before the Lord that God, I exist for you and for your glory and for the fame of your name. This is how we live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejection. It's something all of us have experienced in some form or fashion. A bunch of friends get together, but you didn't get in on the text message or the phone call and didn't get invited. You mustered up the courage to ask that girl out, but she just so happens to be washing her hair that night. Okay, maybe that's just me. I don't know. You try out for the sports team or for the band, and you don't make it. You apply for that college, but don't get in. You interview for that job, but they go with someone else. Rejection, it's difficult. It's painful. It's something that so many of us deal with, even on a regular basis. As a parent, you wrestle through the rejection that your children experience and what you have to navigate. Maybe you've gone through a divorce and the pain that comes with that kind of rejection. Well, you see, the, the scriptures teach us that God is not distant, God is not one who is seated in the heavens and is completely disconnected from people. He's personal. He draws near to the brokenhearted, and he is a God who knows what it is to be rejected. Indeed, the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 53 verse 3 that Jesus, he was despised and rejected by men. In John one eleven. John says that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus knew that he would be rejected. He says in Mark chapter 8, verse 31 the Son of Man will suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He says a chapter later in Mark 9 verse 31 that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. You see, Jesus was rejected so that we would be accepted. That's what we see happening in Mark chapter 11 and 12. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. We are walking through the gospel of Mark together as a faith family, seeing Jesus on the move. More than 40 times in this gospel, we see the word immediately show up. We see Jesus and his ministry, his life, how he is impacting people and pointing them to the kingdom throughout this gospel account. It's fast-paced. It's hard-hitting. For 40 messages, we have seen the life and ministry of Jesus and how he has impacted people in his world. Now, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is seven days of his earthly ministry is now left before he goes to the cross and rises again on the third day. He has come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. We saw last week where he comes into the temple and he flips over tables with righteous indignation, seeing how God's holy temple has been treated with such disregard. We then see in the text where Jesus' authority is challenged. Look with me in Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. The scripture says they came again to Jerusalem as as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him away, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them so they left him and went away the spiritual and emotional and political temperature in Jerusalem is heating up as Passover approaches Jesus is confronted and rejected by the religious leaders of the day, and yet he knew he would be rejected because it would accomplish an even greater purpose, and it's this, our acceptance before God. Notice in the text the three ways that Jesus is rejected. I want you to see first, Jesus is the rejected sovereign, as Jesus is walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they came and asked him, verse 28, by what authority do you do these things? Who gave you the authority to do all that you're doing? They are furious with Jesus and how he had just cleansed the temple. They want to know, who gave you the authority to do that? Who do you think you are? Where do you get your authority? You see, their question here is not out of curiosity. They're not looking into wanting to be teachable and humble, saying, where, where do you get your authority? No, no, no. These questions are accusations. They're on the attack. They're tempting Jesus here to publicly declare his authority as God so that they could accuse him of blasphemy. You see, Jesus, you, you've just slipped over all these tables. You've just knocked over the chairs of the money changers out of the temple. You've disrupted our business. You've you've interrupted our monopoly, our money-making scheme. Who do you think you are? Why do you think you can do such a thing? They hated Jesus because he exposed their hypocrisy and he rejected their man-made traditions. He embarrassed them in front of the crowds and undermined their authority. And so these religious leaders, they despised Jesus. Now the first century audience that John Mark is writing to, when they would read this gospel for the first time, they would get to verse 28 and they probably would just scratch their heads. Saying like, what do you mean by what authority? Have you not seen what Jesus has already done? Even here in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is the one who has authority over Satan. Jesus has authority over demons. Jesus has authority over fever and sickness. Jesus has authority over paralysis. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to teach the Scriptures with clarity and accuracy. Jesus has authority over the weather. Jesus has authority over the seas. Jesus has authority over death by raising a 12-year-old girl who is dead. Jesus has authority to multiply food. Jesus has authority to walk on water. Jesus has authority to heal the deaf. Jesus has the authority to heal the blind. Over and over and over throughout his ministry, Jesus displayed His authority and power over creation and over consciences and over darkness and evil and over all of life. Now as followers of Jesus, we know where Jesus gets his authority. He is the eternal Son of God. In Matthew 11:27, Jesus has all things have been handed over to me by my Father. In John 3, 35, Jesus says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand before Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations before Jesus commanded us to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before he commanded us to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you he says this in the great commission Matthew twenty-eight eighteen: all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Jesus is the Lord and sovereign over all. Well, Jesus responds to these religious leaders by asking them a question. He responds with a question with a question. He asks them, verse 30, was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. Jesus responds, you want to know if I'm legitimate? Okay, how about this? John the Baptist, was he legitimate? What's Jesus doing here? You see, these guys, they come charging at Jesus. They're ready to take him down. And with just a question, he puts them on their heels. They start backpedaling. He asks one question and they're in a pickle. They have built a religious house of cards that's coming down to a crash. So they huddle up and they say, okay, why don't we say that John's baptism was from heaven? And another guy says, no, 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 we can't do that. Because then he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? And the other guy says, okay, well, let's tell him that John's baptism was of human origin. And the other guy says, no, 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 no. Because then the crowd's going to be angry because they all think John the Baptist is a prophet. And so you've got this conflict right here with these these religious leaders because they don't know how to answer this simple question that Jesus asked. And so they respond with, we don't know. Isn't that interesting? Those who have authority, those who are supposed to be the sharpest of the sharp, the leaders of Judaism are backpedaling here before Jesus. These guys are trying to play politics with Jesus. They want to give an answer where they look good to the crowds, but this one question immediately boxes them in. Isn't this the authority of Jesus in his teaching? He has the ability just with one question to turn the entire conversation back against them. And Jesus says, well, since you're not answering my question, I'm not telling you where I get my authority. You see, these religious leaders rejected Jesus's sovereign authority over their lives. Question, what about you? Is Jesus Lord over all of your life? Is Jesus Lord over your money? The money that you have, do you spend it for selfish purposes and your own desires? Or do you think, how can I invest this into things that have eternal impact? Do you see your money as yours and you hoard it? Or are you generous in making much of Christ by caring for the poor and investing what really matters? Is Jesus Lord over your time? Do you say, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it? Or do you see your time as a gift from the Lord that you get to leverage into investing in relationships and giving your life towards things that really matter? Is Jesus Lord over your family? Do you say, Lord, you have my family and my children and my marriage, it's all yours, use them however you see fit? Or do you see them as yours and you do what you want to When you get home from work, do you come in and say, I need some me time? Or do you look for an opportunity to serve and to connect and build meaningful relationships with those within your household? Is Jesus Lord over your job? Do you see your job as what you do for yourself to make money and do do your thing? Or do you see your job as a gift from the Lord and it's his business, it's his job. He has strategically planted you in that factory, in that office, in that school to impact people for Jesus. Is Jesus Lord over your social media? Is what you put on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Twitter, does it honor Christ? Do you do you submit to his lordship by what you put out there? Or do you slander, gossip, lie, murmur? Let me ask you this: Is Jesus Lord over your internet usage? Does his lordship affect what websites you look at? Of what content you consume? Is Jesus Lord over your gifts? The abilities that the the giftings that he has given to you for you to leverage for the good of his church to build his kingdom? Or do you use your gifts for your own personal gain? You see, how you spend your time and your talent and your treasure, it reveals, it reflects the desire of your heart. So the question really is: is Jesus Lord over your heart? Is he king, boss, master over all of you? Or do you just give him a little bit? You see, if you are in Christ, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth and especially over you. And hear me, if Jesus is not your Lord, he is not your savior. He wants all of you. You can't just say, I believe in him for the forgiveness of my sins, but I'm going to go live however I want to. You can't do that in the kingdom. You don't belong to him. Jesus wants all of you. Discipleship demands all of you. You see, the most miserable people on earth are those who are trying to please the Lord and please the world. You can't have both. You have to choose One leads to life, one leads to destruction. May I say to you, turn from the things of this world and run to Christ. Say, Jesus, you're king and Lord over my life. I follow you, not the other way around. And as my savior and king and Lord, you dictate my life. And it's there, y'all, it's right there. When you submit to the lordship of Jesus, there's freedom, there's joy you find that, man, this is why God made me. It's for his glory. And so by me selling out to Jesus, saying, Lord, you can have all of me, that is where God begins to move in your life. This is where you begin to pray and God answers specifically. You see him do things only that he can do. Do not be like these religious rulers and reject Jesus's sovereignty. The second thing we see in the text is that Jesus is the rejected son. Look at the boldness of Jesus in verse one. He began to speak to them in parables. I love this. Jesus here, he's toe to toe with these guys, right? He's eyeball to eyeball. He's not backing down. He's not flinching from these religious rulers. He's not hiding. He is engaging with them. And he tells a parable of a man who plants a vineyard and then rents it out to tenant farmers. When harvest time comes, the owner, he sends a servant to collect the fruit. It's time to go to the vineyard and it's time for me to get all of the stuff that I've been investing in. So he sends a servant, but the farmers beat that servant and send him away empty-handed. So the owner sends another servant and the, they beat that servant. And then the owner sends another servant and they kill him. And they send more servants. And as these servants go to receive the crop that belongs to the owner, they beat them, treat them shamefully. And these farmers, they ultimately kill them. The owner finally decides, all right, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send the one who is an heir, the one who is directly connected to me. They're going to respect my son. But the opposite happens. The farmers conspire together, they kill the sun, and they think if we can just kill the heir, the inheritance of the vineyard is ours. So they kill the sun. What is Jesus doing here in this parable? He's actually singing a song. He's quoting a song that the Lord sang back in Isaiah 5. In Isaiah 5, verse 1, the Lord says this: I will sing about the one i love a song about my loved one's vineyard the one i love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill he broke up the soil he cleared it of stones and planted it with the finest vines he built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there he expected it to yield good grapes but it yielded worthless grapes Jesus here in Mark 12 is applying Isaiah 5 to the people of Israel. He loves them. He sings over them. The Lord delights in his people, hoping that the vineyard of Jerusalem would bear much fruit, but they are, Isaiah 5 two worthless grapes. You see, the man, uh, the owner in this parable is God the vineyard is Jerusalem. We see here the farmers are Israel, the servants are the prophets, and the Son is Jesus. And throughout Israel's history, they have rejected God's servants. They have rejected the prophets, the messengers of God who bring God's messages to God's people. But Israel, they beat them. They killed them. They did not want anyone telling them what they should do. They don't want anyone telling them to repent. They don't want these prophets telling them that judgment is coming. They didn't want anyone telling them about their sin. So they persecuted God's servants, the prophets. Jesus lamented over this in Luke 13, verse 34. And when he wept and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, throughout their history, the people of Israel were hard hearted, they were stiff necked. Stephen affirmed this in Acts chapter 7 as he is standing before the Sanhedrin. Many of these same guys that Jesus is standing before here in chapter 12, verse 1. Stephen will weeks later stand before these same men and he will say this in Acts 7. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did. You do also which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They even killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one who betrays, I'm sorry, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You see, Jesus is the vineyard owner's son. He is the heir that the farmers killed. And did you see what they did to him? Look at verse 8. They seized him killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen here. He was days away from being seized and killed and thrown out of the vineyard of Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was thrown out of the vineyard so that we could come in forever. This is what's happening here. Kenneth, what what are you talking about? Okay, in Leviticus 16, we read of the Day of Atonement, the one day every year in which the the high priest gets to go into the Holy of Holies. He gets to go into the inner sanctuary of the temple and make a sacrifice. He would take the blood of a bull and take the blood of a goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. The mercy seat are the two cherubim, the two angels, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, in which their wings come together, and right in the middle is the, the mercy seat. And only the high priest could do it one dime and sprinkle the blood on there. But here's what also happens they're then commanded in Leviticus 16 to take the bull and take the goat and take them outside of the city where they would be burned. Their bodies, their carcasses were to be burned up. Well, you see, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the one who atones for our sin through his shed blood, he went outside the vineyard. He was taken outside of Jerusalem where he was tortured and where he was crucified. You see, Jesus was consumed with the fire of God's wrath towards our sin at the cross. He was taken up Calvary's hill outside Jerusalem where he would bear our disgrace. Hebrews 13, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Watch this. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. You see, Jesus was taken outside the camp so that we might be brought into a right relationship with God. Since Jesus suffered outside the camp, outside the vineyard, outside of Jerusalem, the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's go suffer with him. Let us bear his disgrace. Let's receive the same punishment and suffering that he experienced. You see, it's out of the glorious gospel of God's grace in Jesus that we are to be prepared to suffer with him. Paul said it like this in Philippians chapter 3 verse 10. He says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. You see, this is the call to be a disciple of Christ. To go with Jesus. To go outside the camp. To be a follower of Jesus means we are going to be mistreated in this world. If you're thinking about following Christ and think that it leads to happiness and health and all the good things that come with it, be prepared to be disappointed. The call to follow Christ is a call to suffer. It's a call to die and to You see here in the text what the vineyard owner is going to do? Because they killed the son, look at verse 9. He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Okay, now y'all, this is where you got to dig in here. This is so good. I hope my ability to teach the word is helpful here because this is rich. These Jewish leaders who have orchestrated the death of Jesus, they are going to be killed in 70 A.D., The Roman military is going to come into Jerusalem where they will slaughter the vast majority of the people living in Jerusalem. The temple that Herod's been building here, and he's still building at the time of Jesus, it'll be completed six years before the Roman military show up. It's going to be completely destroyed. Every brick, every stone is pulled down. When Christy and I were over there a couple of years ago, there are still stones on the ground. From when Rome tore them down. this is so significant. Now when we get to the after Easter, Lord willing, we're going to unpack this further uh, as we look at the end times of what happens as Jesus tells us what's coming. But note, however, that the vineyard here that Jesus is talking about, it's going to be given to others. There are those outside of Israel, those who are not farmers, who are going to receive the inheritance of the Son. Okay, let, let, let's dig in here. Those who will, look at verse 9, they're going to receive the vineyard. What Jesus is pointing to here are Gentiles who Romans 11 are grafted in to the promise of Israel. Remember the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12? I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God told Abraham that his offspring would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. Well, sure enough, through Jesus Christ... All the peoples of the earth who believe the gospel are like stars in the sky, Gentiles who are grafted into the true vine of Israel. This means that you and I, we are included here. The vineyard owner gives his vineyard to us. We get to receive the benefit of what Christ has accomplished for us, for all who trust in Jesus question, do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? If you do not today, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. He is the Messiah. Believe the gospel. Trust in the good news of Jesus and what he did for you at the cross. That Jesus at the cross gave his life so that through his shed blood, you could be forgiven of your sin. You you possess eternal life. You are adopted into his eternal family. This is the gospel that God promises to you. And he promises that he's going to give you and I, who believe the gospel, the vineyard, all who belong to the son. You see, there's coming a day where there's gonna come a new Jerusalem. There's coming a day in which God is gonna send this heavenly city down. And all the children of God who have believed the gospel, we're gonna live there. We're gonna be together. We're gonna be in the vineyard all because Jesus is the one. He is the son who was rejected. He was taken outside the camp. He was taken up to Calvary's Hill where he suffered and died for us. You see, because Jesus is the rejected son, we are the accepted children of God who will one day, we will live with him in the new vineyard, we will be in the new Jerusalem. The third thing I want you to see here in the text is that Jesus is the rejected stone. Quoting Psalm 118, Jesus here is quoting a messianic psalm, verse 10, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus here is pointing to himself as the stone that the builders rejected. So when a builder builds a building, he's selecting the right stones through which to build with. And he will pick through all these different stones looking for the perfect stone with straight lines that it can be the cornerstone upon which the entire structure is built. The symmetry, the strategy, it has to be just the right kind of stone. Well, the builders are those who are rejecting the stones. And here, we see Jesus is saying, I am the rejected stone from Psalm 118 that the builders, that the Jews, Israel, has thrown out. But they threw me out at the cross, but three days later, Jesus comes back to life. He defeats death. He's the one who has victory and conquers over death itself and he becomes the cornerstone upon which the kingdom of God is built. This is what Jesus is saying here. I am the rejected stone, but upon me, I am going to build my church and not even the gates of hell will overcome her. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the kingdom of God is built. So Kenneth, what are you you calling us to? What, What does this look like for us? It's your impact point, and it's this. Bask in this reality. You are fully accepted because Jesus was rejected. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus intentionally went to an area where he was not welcome he went to Samaria. And when he got there, he went to engage one woman. She had been married five times. And the man that she was living with with at that time wasn't her husband. She had a reputation. And at that time, rabbis don't talk with women, especially in public. Someone like Jesus should not be mingling with someone with such a bad reputation like this woman. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Jews don't go into Samaria. But Jesus is breaking down geographical barriers. He's breaking down racial barriers. He's breaking down gender barriers. Because he wants this woman to know, though you are rejected by the world, you are not rejected by me. I saw this beautifully portrayed recently in a show called The Chosen, and I want you to see what it looks like. Check out the screen. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. I am rejected by others. I know. But not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. (laughs) Spirit and truth Spirit and truth It won't be all about mountains or temples Soon Just the heart (laughs) You promise I promise Jesus The one who was rejected All because He wants you to be accepted One who will never say No to you That you can't come into my kingdom He will never say I'm going to divorce you He will never say you're not included. Through his cross, he invites you and the entire world who believes upon him to be received. Jesus was rejected so that you would be accepted forever in him.